Let's pray together. Father, you have held the oceans in your hand, and you have numbered every grain of sand. Kings and nations tremble at your voice as we've sung, and we rose this morning and have come today to rejoice in all your works, especially your work on the cross where we know that you, through Christ, destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil, and delivered us from a fear even of death. And Father, it is because we can have no fear in death that we can have no fear in life. Your glory fills the earth and your glory fills our hearts this morning. Father, grow us this morning in the knowledge of your presence so that we will know that you are with us and so that knowing this, we will know that we have nothing to fear. All things are from you and through you and to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. If you will, open your Bibles to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. If you are new to DSC, we're in the middle of a series through the book of Psalms. This is the, a long book right in the middle of your Bibles. If you're new to the Bible, just open uh, it up right in the middle. And there, is, there it is, the book of Psalms. Psalm 46 is our text this morning. The series is called Pour Out Your Heart to Him. These are short poems, songs written from the heart of God's people to God about every emotion and conviction that we have as God's people, expressions of trust in him. And today we're reading a song about fear and what it means that God is with us. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am. Am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, what are you afraid of? Ours is a world of trouble and a world of hurt, and there is plenty to be afraid of. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of this morning? Maybe to ask it a different way, what is the worst thing that could happen to you in this life? And are you ready for it? Bad news has a way of shaking us up, um, shaking us down to our foundation so that we see what it is, helping us see what is the middle of our life, to see where our life is, where our trust is. Are we ready for bad news And by ready, I don't just mean that we're expecting it or know that it will come, but that we are truly spiritually prepared to hear it. 
to endure the worst that this life can throw at us because in time it will throw the worst at us. Some of you have been there and back this year. Some of you have been there and back this week. And before we return next week, some of you will have been there and back. Some of you will just be there. Psalm 46 is a psalm to know if you ever do expect to get bad news. I would recommend it. This psalm is for hard days. It's a psalm for the hospital. Here we learn that God will not necessarily keep us out of trouble, but he will keep us through trouble. Writing about fear, Ed Welch writes, There's a language, a logic to fear and anxiety, just like there are to most emotions. Anger says, you are wrong. Embarrassment or shame says, I am wrong. Fear says, I'm in danger. Or to use the language of our psalm, I'm in trouble. My wife called me into the kitchen twice recently, this last few weeks with news that she learned on Facebook of trouble that struck the life of two different ladies Both are from Louisville. Both lost their husbands in recent weeks in car accidents. One of them selling everything she has on Craigslist to support herself and her seven-month-old baby. The other couple had poured all their resources into their business together. So with her husband's death, she has very little to work with. That's trouble. Trouble struck the lives of my parents when uh, my older brother, I wasn't alive at the time, but my older brother was born normal, but with some heart problems. Uh, He had multiple open heart surgeries in the first year and a half of his life. He was a year and a half old with all of the development that a year and a half old has and contracted meningitis in the hospital. By the time they figured out what was going on to explain his behavior, uh, he was severely mentally handicapped. And to this day, he's like a two-month-old baby. Um. Trouble struck our family growing up when my dad lost his job as an executive at a company that had been around over 100 years, I think. Uh, I, it didn't hit me to say moving was, moving was the hardest part, but uh, you know, dad not having a job, hearing conversations about money and the house and what's going to happen if we don't get a job. And he was overqualified for a number of jobs. It was a difficult season, especially for my parents, but hard for me too as a kid. Christy and I rehearsed our fears this week as I was preparing for this sermon. And sure enough, the trouble we fear the most is losing each other or one of our children. Some of you have been right there. You know from your experience of losses that losses are coming. You're braced for them. I'm not telling anything you you don't know. And death sure is the big one. There's a good reason for that, of course. But let's drill down a little bit more into this idea of fear. There are more subtle fears than this big one. Death, we could say, has a thousand annoying little brothers. Fears that in some ways play more intimately into our daily decisions, the things we say and how we live. Listening for fear, Ed Welsh says, is like listening to background noise. A fear of rejection, for example. That one will make you work hard for the boss or get that haircut for that guy. Now, there are good reasons to do both, but a fear of rejection is often mingled in there with even good things and fine things. Some of us live in it, live in a fear of rejection. The wildest parties, by the way, are filled with people scared to death of being rejected. For some of you, it's a fear of being alone the rest of your life. 
Or if you're married, a fear of not having children. There's a fear of insignificance, being obscure, being that guy or that girl. A fear of failure, looking back on your life and seeing a series of costly and embarrassing mistakes. The more we think about it, the more fear really does touch so many parts of our life and explains, at least in part, so many of our sins that may otherwise be hard to stick our finger on what exactly is going on there, how exactly that relationship went weird, went bad, fear. Then there's the whole category of phobias, often fears that are utterly irrational on the basis of normal, finite human knowledge. Spiders aren't exactly in this category. Uh, they are to be feared, but in our family, uh, spiders. Since our, uh, we were first married, so we're married, we're living together, I would come home from work and be taken around the home. Uh, to defeat these things. Uh, one there, I couldn't see them. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's still funny. She sees them from across the room. She like knows the walls and the specs and it's been an automatic point mechanism for me um, to kill spiders and be on her excellent uh, side. Psalm 46 tells us that we have nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing. Well, how can the psalmist say we, have, we will have no fear and speak for you and me as God's people? He's not in our life, right? Plenty of real troubles came to mind at the start of this sermon when I asked that question. Psalm 46 says, though, that we have nothing to fear when the Lord is with us. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And speaking of God's people, in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And then the twice-repeated refrain, did you hear it? Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. We will have nothing to fear in the face of great trouble because the Lord is with us. He's a very present help. He's in the midst of us. The Lord is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. And what does it mean that he's with us? The idea of presence is somewhat abstract. And there are different kinds of presences. Surely God is present in heaven, as we sang this morning. And there he does all that he pleases. Doesn't he? He's in heaven. He's also everywhere present. That's what we mean when we say that he's omnipresent. He knows all things because he's everywhere. Last week, my son said to me, out of nowhere, Hey, Dad, God is everywhere. You're right, son. Yeah, he's running all over the place. Uh, and in the next breath, God is in heaven and you can't see him. Uh, so he's starting to connect the theological dots. At some point, he'll ask me how that fits together. Look forward to that conversation. But God is present in a special and in a saving way with his people. With you and me, if we are in Christ. And that presence and all that it means, means that we have nothing to fear. Nothing. Remember the familiar words of David in Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Whereas we read this morning God's words to Joshua through Moses, it is the Lord who goes before you, Deuteronomy 31, 8. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or David's words to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28, 20. 
Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. For a child, the presence of a parent has certain meaning, doesn't it? It has certain assurances. It has certain effects. The presence of parents, even when things are half right, means that one, the bad guys can't get you. And two, you're going to get something to eat. And so it is with God. His presence has certain effects for us. What are those effects? What is it about God's presence that is so good? What is it about God's presence that means we have nothing to fear in this world of trouble and in this world of hurt? Well, in our series through the Psalms so far, we've seen that these songs are rich with imagery, haven't we? Word pictures. And it's time to get out our mental sketch pads again because there are a few more coming. In this psalm, we will see that the God who is with us is a fortress. He is a river. He is a warrior. And he is a promise keeper. So let's dig in. First, we will see that we have nothing to fear for our God is a fortress. Our God is a fortress. Read with me in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then again in verse 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word fortress is just a more vivid way to say refuge. Both get at the idea of protection from harm. This idea of protection from harm, refuge, is at the heart of this psalm. Just from repetition, we pick that up. But from repetition throughout the psalms, we see that it's a major theme in the whole book of psalms. There are a dozen different Hebrew words, some used more than a dozen times, to get at the idea of protection. I could read a number of verses for you, but I almost only have to read one. Certainly enough to make the point. Psalm 18.2. Listen to all the images he pulls together. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. God is our fortress. Well, we all know what it means to take cover. I don't care how fantastic or lame a home you have, it has a roof. And I would take the lamest home with a roof over the most elaborate structure any day because I need protection from the elements. In the hardest of economic times, no builder will offer the option of a roof or not. And the same is true for windows. They keep the rain out, the elements out, and they keep the possums out. It was three years ago now, in the middle of the night, Christy and I were uh, awoken by a banging and scratching, and on the wall, the shadow of a giant ragged possum, uh, wet from the rain, and we looked to the window where the noise was coming from, and there was the silhouette of this possum scratching and fussing at the, at the window. We had an AC unit installed in this particular window, so it, some of what kept us between uh, us and the elements was uh, plastic. He was scraping at the plastic. 
I don't remember exactly how I obtained my camera, but I might have left the room and left my wife in the room and got the camera and came back, and I did. But I got a picture of the animal, and it was okay. And, uh, and he took off, maybe because he was scared of me. Well, consider how architecture differs around our own country based on the weather and the elements and the threats from nature. In Florida, it's hurricanes. In the Midwest, it's tornadoes, and you have a cellar. God keeps the trouble from ultimately harming us. He's a fortress against it, a shelter, a shield, a refuge. And that God is a fortress means a few things. First, he is strong. Second, we, we are not strong. Third, we need him. And fourth, he looks out for us. He cares for us. He takes care of us. But what exactly is God a fortress from? What exactly is the Lord's protection good for, effective for? We know what a roof is good for, but for all the praying we do, and for as much as he cares, we are still smitten by untold trouble, aren't we? What exactly is God a fortress from? Thankfully, the psalmist clarified exactly what he meant in verses 2 through 3. Let's read verses 1 through 3. God is a refuge, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This truly is a worst case scenario, as Ryan called a similar line of verses in a previous sermon this year. What, could, what more could nature throw at us than for the mountains to be moved into the heart of the sea? Or for the mountains to tremble at the swelling and roaring of the sea? Not the coastlands tremble, not the beaches, but the mountains tremble at the roaring of the sea. This is a total undoing of creation. God made everything and brought order to everything, and here is everything coming absolutely undone. Anything you like on land or like to do on land or person you like to be with on land is gone. And the same is true for the water. There's no escaping this undoing. There's no recovery effort by faraway peoples. There's tragedy everywhere. It ruins everything, and there can be and there will be no recovery from this what we see here. I'm not a mind reader, but let me just say that this is probably worse than whatever any of us was thinking in answer to the question at the head of the sermon. Actually, it probably includes everything we were thinking. God is a fortress from all of that. He's a fortress from anything the earth can do to you, from nature. Now look with me to verse 6. God is a fortress from people as well. From the nations. Verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. We don't usually tend to describe international politics uh, in terms of raging nations. But all that happens between nations is really a magnification of what happens between all of us here on the ground. In our marriages and our relationships. Where there's a quiet rage under the surface. It looks different for different people. Some of us blow up easily and often. Some of us are a slow cook on the way to a nuclear blast. There's a terrible violence under the surface of every nation and even our lives being held at bay by various God-ordained restraints. Remove the rule of law, for example, and see what happens. 
Make every home parentless. <laughs> Leave children to find their own way on their own and see what happens. The kingdoms totter. Aren't we seeing the tottering of the world's great kingdoms right now with the economic struggles, collapses? The nations totter as they try to stand on the foundation of their own moral corruption. Economic instability often follows from moral instability. That happens in our personal lives and it happens in our national lives as well. It's very complicated. But the nations are tottering. We see enshrined in the laws and leaders and aspirations of any nation a tangible expression of what is in every human heart, good and bad. The nations rage The kingdoms totter. And this rage is nothing less than the rage against God and his sovereign rule. The worst trouble between nations falls under the umbrella of Psalm 46.6. God is a fortress from this too. He's a fortress from a troubled earth and from a troubled people. We shall not fear nature or nations. But doesn't that include everything? In other words, we have nothing to fear for God is a fortress from everything. But what does that mean? What it surely does not mean is that we have a fortress to protect us from these things happening. That's just obvious enough. Though the earth gives way, we will not fear. The earth still gives way. We're just not afraid of it. What it does mean is that When it does give way, we are still standing when it's all over because we are fixed to a foundation that does not move. And we know it even now when the earth isn't necessarily giving way today. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Though we get news that we have cancer, though we get news that our loved one was in a fatal accident, Though our child is stillborn, though we remain single, though our best friend spreads rumors about us at school or slanders us to the boss and compromises our career, though our spouse cheats, though our lives and way of life is threatened by nuclear attack, though we lose our job, though we die, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Though the earth gives way, though the nations rage, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And what are we to do? How does he become our fortress? Proverbs 18.10 gives us a picture of salvation and every day in the Christian life. The name of the Lord is a strong tower The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Psalm 18.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You feel safe from natural disaster? I don't mean safe as in it can't get you or that you could weather it for a time. I mean safe from the mountains moving into the heart of the sea. You feel safe from raging nations or an economic collapse? doesn't mean we shouldn't be busy preparing for things and and watching the signs, but ultimately, are you prepared for the worst? Run to the one who can protect you from death itself. Run into him. He's a fortress. We have nothing to fear. God is with us. 
Our God is a fortress. And second, our God is a river. Our God is a river. In the first section, the nation, the, the, the waters raged, right? The seas raged, the waters roared, threatening and taking life. Here, they feed and sustain and give life. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Does water come out of your tap at home? might come from a well. I learned this week that it probably comes from a river. Clint, our missions director on staff, has a degree in water engineering, so he knows these things. He said, yeah, water used to come from wells, and then there was a study done that, that showed that there really wasn't nearly as much water under our feet as we thought, and we could run out of water if we didn't come up with a solution. And plans were put in place and executed to draw water from some lake that comes to us through the river. The river feeds us. Whatever water does in your home and in your life, it's feeding Albuquerque. Rivers bring life. Ever notice the big craggy trees down by the river? The smell of freshly cut grass down by the river? The river brings life. Consider that the first thing we can do to address poverty in an undeveloped country is to provide a self-sustaining solution for a supply of clean water. And that's what we're busy doing in Guatemala among the Achi, in part to show them that God's doing that for us spiritually in Christ. No matter how elaborate the city, kill the water system and you will destroy every layer of stability and culture. Gone. Starts with water. The river brings life. Ron said last week that the people of Israel were a desert people. They get about as much rain as we do, seven, eight, nine inches a year. And in some parts, as little as two inches a year. Well, God is a river who makes glad the city of God. The city of God, Jerusalem. This is a favorite way for the writers of these songs, the Psalms, to refer to Jerusalem. I love the description in Psalm 48, 1 through 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The city of God is where God is. It's where he dwells with his people. And at that time, that is where he dwelled with his people. That he dwells there is a reference to his temple, the temple where he met with his people. God is in the midst of her. She can't be moved. The mountains may move into the heart of the sea, but God's city doesn't move because God is with his people in the city. God's city is alive and thrives because he waters it with his presence. And in the same way that the refuge and fortress imagery is a physical picture of God's protection of us spiritually, the river imagery is a picture of God's spiritual provision of life for us. Psalm 42, 1 through 2, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. God is a river, and what are we to do? To drink from him. Drink from him. The Christian life is a life of running into God as our fortress, and drinking from him is our river. Go to him for your happiness, for all you need. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 29 through 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Fear not, you are more important 
than birds. You and I will both fall to the ground one day, but not apart from our Father's will. And when we do, we will pass through death into more and more life forever. And we know that life even now. In Genesis 2.10, we read that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. God gives and sustains life. And rivers teach us that and have since the very beginning. Nothing can take our life when our life is in him. We have nothing to fear when God is with us. God is our fortress. God is a river. And third, our God is a warrior. Our God is a warrior. Read with me verses 6 and then 8 and 9. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God made the world with a word. And when he utters his voice, the earth melts. The text says he brings desolations on the earth. Does the earth seem powerful to you? Nature is awfully powerful. God very much so. He can speak and shut it down. He rules the natural world. He also rules the nations. Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. Psalm 33:10 says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. He puts an end to the warring of nations. He frustrates their plans by putting an end to injustices that start and sustain war and by destroying the weapons of war. Chariots, bows, spears. Visual aid. I have this book I picked up a few years ago called Essential Militaria. Facts, Legends, and Curiosities about Warfare Through the Ages. I don't read it often enough, but it is out uh, in my office at home by Nicholas Hobbs. Here are a few interesting tidbits about the history of the world and warfare. Alexander the Great sustained major wounds by six different weapons. Did you know that? Cleaver slashed the head. A sword blow to the thigh. A catapult missile to the chest. Stone struck his head and a stone struck his neck and a dart pierced his shoulder. And an arrow passed through his leg, another through his ankle and another lodged in his lung. I'm not sure how he survived almost any of those wounds. In the little book, there's a list of ten of the bloodiest wars, lives lost by weapons. Stats on the world's largest armies, navies, air forces, military budgets. A whole history of weapons technology. Who invented what? The chariot? The Sumerians. Fully mechanized crossbow? France. The machine gun? England. The submarine? The American colonies. The parachute? France. The airplane? United States. I'm not sure why those are in that order. Uh, radar, the United Kingdom. Stealth aircraft, the United States. Under animals of war, one experiment with napalm hits close to home. During World War II, the United States Project X-Ray involved strapping miniature napalm charges to thousands of bats and releasing them over Japan. The plan was abandoned after the bats escaped and destroyed an aircraft hangar and a general's car in New Mexico. <laughs> so, there's some New Mexico war history for you. 
The weapons, statistics, and stories in this little book represent life in a world between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. In Genesis 3.15, we have a promise that Satan, the serpent, will be defeated by a son of Eve. Some kind of battle, a struggle. The son of Eve's foot will be bruised, but the serpent's head will be crushed. In Revelation 21, God ushers in a new creation where everything is right and good after a battle where God's enemies, all of them, and the enemy behind them all who rages against him are finally defeated. We were given the earth for food and pleasure, but we use it to make weapons to kill one another. And if we're not making them to take over the world, we're making them to keep someone else from taking over the world. Listen to how God describes the nations in Psalm 2 and look at how he responds and what he does about it. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. None of this is a statement about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of any weapon or any war or war in general. It is obvious enough that war happens in a fallen world and that even the most just war is complicated by our finitude, our fallenness, at every level of strategy, decision-making, and execution, of course. No, Psalm 46 is a statement about God's absolute sovereignty over all affairs, natural and human, including war, one of humankind's most destructive and self-destructive behavioral disorders. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He breaks the nuclear bomb and shatters the drone. He burns the jets with fire. Psalm 46 is a statement that one day, the conditions that make war possible in the first place will be no more. And the weapons of war will be no more. But the end of warring is still future. The war to end all wars is still future. And for now, it's still a scary world, and it's still scary to be a human being. Stephen King understands this when he writes, I like to scare people. People like to be scared. Uh, He's kind of right. Have you seen Toy Story 3? Scariest movie I've seen in my whole life. And then it gets scarier again and scarier again. We come into the world screaming and under the fabric of the universe is a dark and unspeakable trouble. Sometimes it nips at us, sometimes it bites us, and sometimes it swallows us whole for its side. Scary books and scary movies resonate with the world we live in, validating our fears. And their endings usually resonate with the world we want as it to work out. The world as we want it to work out, validating our hopes. 
Did you notice that in Psalm 46, the Lord is called the Lord of hosts? That title appears in other places too, like when David faced Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. That was a scary moment in the scary story called the Bible. David said to the Philistine, Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled, who you have defied. God is the Lord of every heavenly angelic being, and they're all at his beck and call. As a fortress, God defends us against natural and human evil. As a warrior, he defeats it. And notice what we're told to do. What's your part? What's my part? Behold the works of the Lord. Behold. In other words, watch. Watch this. Watch God defeat his enemies. Watch God win. We have nothing to fear when God is with us. He is a fortress. Run into him. He is a river. Drink from him. Find your life in him. He is a warrior who defeats all of his enemies. Behold his works. But what exactly was the psalmist thinking? Weren't there wars? Weren't some of God's enemies still loose? Are there not wars now going on? Was the writer just having a really good day, optimistic, a glass half full kind of day? Guy, I recently saw a cartoon. The glass is always full, half water, half air. Maybe he just didn't really understand the situation. No, no, no. He had the promises of God. We have nothing to fear for God is with us. He's our fortress. He is a river. He is a warrior. And fourth, he is a promise keeper. Our God is a promise keeper. Verse 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Did you notice that the Lord who is with us is the God of Jacob? Here's what one commentator said about this. The Bible gives no indication that Jacob ever in all his 147 years experienced either flood or earthquake. His lifestyle was, outwardly at least, a quiet pastoral one. Its tenor, as level as most its landscapes. But though he may never have gone up a mountain or down to the sea, his story is full of ups and downs of another kind. Genesis 25 through 50 depict a family life seething with crisis and personalities that roar and foam. The God who made something good out of this is with us also. And that is true. But it does miss the point. I read a paragraph or two in both directions uh, and think that it's missed the point. Jacob is not named here because he had a life of trouble. Though he had some. But because God promised that through Jacob, he would put an end to trouble. Listen to what God said to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, in Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what he said years later to Jacob in Genesis 35, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation... A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you. That's why the psalmist writes that God is the God of Jacob. He's with us. That's why that he's the God of Jacob is comforting. 
The God of Jacob is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Through Abraham and through Jacob would come the promised son of Eve who would defeat the serpent in the end. God is carrying that promise from Genesis 3.15 forward. Even through Jacob. He's the God of Jacob. And the God of Jacob who keeps his promises says in Isaiah 46.10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will. I will. And when the God of Jacob, the promise making and keeping God says, I will, God will. The God of Jacob will. He will do everything. He will undo everything terrible and set the world right. The nations will not rage forever. Men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation will exult in him and worship him and bow the knee to him. In fact, all the other things God is for us hangs on this thing that God is highly exalted over us and purposing all the time to pursue his own glory. God will be exalted among the nations and he will be exalted in all the earth. But how does he keep these promises? How, how does he go about making this happen? Tangibly, consider with me that God, the promise keeper, keeps this promise and all his promises through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. That's tangible. God becoming a babe, living a human life for us, dying a criminal's death for us, and being raised from the dead for us in real life. Jesus Christ is our fortress, our refuge. Jesus tells us what we really need protection from, by the way, in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus came that anyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. He's the son of Psalm 2. Remember what God said to him? You are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth and everyone here. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. More than refuge from what the earth can do to us or what people can do to us. We need refuge from the wrath of God, which is rightly ours, but which Christ takes. He's a refuge from the wrath of God, dying on the cross in our place. When trouble comes and you are afraid, be still and know that God is a fortress for you in Jesus Christ. He will be exalted through your trouble as the source of your protection from eternal harm. God will be exalted among the nations as a fortress for his people. Jesus Christ is also our life-giving river. Remember his words to a woman drawing water from a well? John 4, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus was there fulfilling, claiming to fulfill a number of promises, including one from Ezekiel 47 of a river in Jerusalem that would yield undying life and heal those who drank from it. By his spirit, he is that living water to us now. And Revelation 7.17 says that Christ will guide his people to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
That work has already begun if we're in Christ and have his spirit. God is within us. For now, listen to how Paul encourages believers with the nearness of God in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Go to God in prayer, making your requests to him. The river, this river makes glad the city of God. That's us, his people. It brings peace, causes us to rejoice, makes our prayers heard, washes away our tears. The river is Christ and the city is us. When, when trouble comes and you're afraid, be still and know that God is a river for you in Jesus Christ. He will be exalted through your trouble as the river of life that never ends, that you drink from and that fuels your joy and contentment. Jesus Christ is also our victorious warrior. He says to the raging sea, what? Peace, be still. And it is still. Nature under control. Check. But then, Christ tells Peter to put down his sword when he's being arrested. Then he was mocked, beaten, and hung on a cross to suffer a criminal's death. Like a warrior? Does that sound like a warrior? Hebrews 2.14 through 17 says that it was through death that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And this victory over death and the devil was accomplished by being made like his brothers, like us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Colossians 2.15 says that he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He was resurrected from the dead, a victorious warrior over death, defeating death at its own game. We sung these words by Martin Luther this morning. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We sang that. When trouble comes and you are afraid, be still and know that God is a warrior for you in Jesus Christ. He will be exalted in your trouble as the victor over death and over sin and over the devil. Can you imagine what it would be like to live without fear? Christianity takes the fear out of life because it takes the fear out of death. And one of the signs that we know God is that we are growing in a fearlessness of death. And of all its annoying little brothers, the approval of others, insignificance, being alone, 
because we are growing in the knowledge of all that it means that God is with us. Run into him, your fortress. Drink from him, your river. Behold his works and trust him. Yes, in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. And surely, as God will be exalted above the nations, as surely as we will be safe from every trouble if we are in Christ. Romans 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have nothing to fear. In Christ, God is with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God of Jacob, God of promise, grant us to believe all of these things. For in Christ you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We have nothing to fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea, though anything that we've imagined this morning were to come true or is coming true. There is a river that makes whose streams make glad the city of God. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have in our hearts spring that wells up to eternal life. Help us to know the peace and the comfort and the joy and the gladness that that is supposed to mean for us. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. We will not fear, for the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, the promise keeper, is our fortress. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.